Guru Nation, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. It really means a lot to me. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Thank you so much. Leave a review. I wanted to also thank my sponsors who make this show possible. The first one is Viva Sight Vault. Absolutely free. By the way, links to all of this stuff is in the show notes. Viva Sight Vault. If you are a site and you wanted to dip your toe into going digital and for e-reg and to start messing around with e-signatures, this is the way to go. They are the biggest name in our industry from a tech vendor standpoint. They're site-centric. They make this easy for us, guys and gals. And it's absolutely free. Sites.viva.com. Check it out. I use it. I also use Versatrail, which is my next sponsor. Versatrail has made my life so easy as a coordinator from an organization standpoint. Links to all these portals are in one easy place. You can literally link to anything you can think of, whether it's a protocol or it's the latest informed consent form or it's the IRT or it's the vendor to upload this or the other vendor to upload that. It's all there in one easy place. Not to mention, they do a lot on the feasibility side, which makes feasibility surveys a breeze. Check it out. This is a company that is going places. Versatrail. My next sponsor is Creo. I've been using Creo for years. They are eSource and eReg and CTMS and patient database and eConsent and so many more other things. And while they are not free, I definitely think it is worth the price for what you are getting. It has streamlined my research studies and my site, and I got all my coordinators trained on it, and I could not picture running my site without Creo. So check it out. Link in the show note. Finally, Inato, a free service for business development. Go figure. Link in the show note. It makes figuring out what studies you want easier. It makes figuring out what you're going to get if you accept the study super simple. And it really streamlines the process for knowing what's out there on the market. You can use it for as many investigators as you have. And again, it's absolutely free in Nato. Also in the show notes are links to the businesses I own, specifically DSCS, where we help sites get studies, do their contracts, help you with surveys, anything else you can think of, a shoulder to cry on, low monthly fee. And then we have the CRA, CRC Academies, and everything in Twitter. So Monday, Monday, guys, you'll see this on YouTube, but we are live on Facebook, live on LinkedIn, live on Twitter. We don't go live on YouTube because the algorithms do not respect the long tail of the live content. They think it's just breaking news when it's not. So, no, no, this is going to be somewhat evergreen. Uh, well, at least for the next few years. So we're going to get it to why. Joel White, I'm a huge fan now. For like two weeks. <laughs> Founder at Market Cap Consulting. I think the industry needs Joel. I think he, from some of the posts he's been writing on LinkedIn, he cuts through the BS. Like, there's all these DCT apologists, tech vendor apologists, 
there's apologists for anything in this space, but there's never like critical voices or the voices that kind of look logically at this at this stuff, especially from like the financial aspect. And Joel White, amazing post. You caught me, and then I brought that post attention to Chris about Ikevia purchasing site network for 300 million. Did they ever say how many sites were in it? I counted about 30. 10 million location. Not bad, Dan. (laughs) I like just guessing. I'm like, that's gotta be about 30 sites and 2 million each. EBITDA 10 X multiple. Yeah, no, no, nothing disclosed on the profitability um, of, of cognitive CCT. Man, Um, if they were averaging 1 million EBITDA, that's a wow. Wow, that's so, all I would have to say. So before we went live, you, you didn't disclose that, Dan. I didn't realize Joel was the one that wrote that article. I told you, man, as soon as you came in. I said, Joel Did wrote you? the article. Yeah, man. Right. So I got hey, a question. Hey, man, it ain't my fault if you don't listen, Chris. You've got to <laughs> so, be a good co-host, man. So, you, so I'm about to derail uh, the conversation right off the top. Hold on, we didn't even introduce Joel, but okay. go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you say no. your thing, and then we're going to introduce Well, you Joel. and I did a video on this already, so since he wrote the article, I was going to ask for clarification. Well, who um, knows you, if he on, even watched the video. Did on the hour-long discussion we had on something about that article. Joel's so sophisticated, he probably watched our analysis and laughed. So... <sighs> I've watched your business, uh, the CR, the business of a CRO, yeah. Uh, that I think launched, and um, we can go into that if you want to. I think we've got some some serious fact checking to do. No offense <laughs> to your guest, but uh, yeah, there were there were some whoppers there. Chris, go ahead, please. So you used I can't remember. You used two <laughs> terms in that article that are somewhat interchangeable in the business. Yeah. So. Dan and I had a long conversation about this, really an hour long, I think. So you use the term site network yeah, and yeah. SMO. Yep. So do you, do you know the, the difference between those two organizations? Uh, yeah, I think people are better to hear it uh, from you because I get confused by it sometimes. Okay. So I just found it very astonishing that Akivia paid 320, I believe it was 320 million. 300. Or, for a, as much as 300 million, probably slightly less. The, probably the, the guy, quote, yeah. Probably the guy on both boards who like was on both boards got the 20, like finder's fee. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. rounding. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I just found it very astonishing that Akivia would pay 300 million for a site network, right? Which really entails very little, if any, ownership in the actual businesses right because those are all independently owned it'd be difficult to purchase each and every one of those sites individually i would assume oh yeah Um, a site management organizations oftentimes they do own at least a percentage of the sites so that makes more sense i just was curious if that were the case was it a site network that they paid 300 million for I don't know enough about cognitive um, to, to go into that. Um, okay. Yeah, I just I have to go strictly off of you know, what Ari, the, yeah, Ari the, the CEO said, you know, which is that which is that we paid you know close to three hundred million dollars for cognitive, 
that they paid 30 million for a different SMO using the specific term SMO. And then it, it, it appears that they, you know, they spent a total um, on acquisitions of, I think it was over 460 um, million in the quarter. So that right. Delta 100 million is apparently benchmark, uh, right. benchmark clinical research. And, uh, and because the, the owner of benchmark reached out to me directly to, you know, to clarify that he was Mark not Lacey. 30 million. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Lacey, right? yeah. That he was not the 30 million SMO. I think he was insulted by that. Um, so <laughs> he should be insulted by that. that be. Mark Lacey has, is an OG. He's been running. I've met him a few times. He's been running yeah. his site since like early 2000s. There's no way it's 30 million. Joel, with the way this bubble is growing, <laughs> 30 million is almost like a startup. Well, let's like, let's yeah. talk about that, Dan, because right right before we went live, um, uh, you know, Chris asked a comment, like, what are some of the underlying trends or themes that like I try to reinforce? And one of those is that sites are not poor. But, well, you okay, look at okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, let's yeah. do that. But before, like, let's do let's do a proper intro, okay? Like, okay, proper. Okay, intro. Joel White, everybody, his LinkedIn's gonna be underneath this video, and if you're listening on the podcast in the show notes, check it out. He's a must follow on LinkedIn. Okay, he's the founder of Market Cap Consulting, where we're gonna get into what he does, but basically helps companies improve their financial performance and strategy execution by providing unique objective insight into the challenges and opportunities they face. He's been a vice president of finance at Sinteract. Before that, he was a director of budgets and proposals at Chiltern. Chris, you might have worked with Joel. Like when somebody didn't do what you needed on the contract, you probably like ran it up the ladder to Joel. Parexcel, he was director of contracts management in Parexcel. PRA International, director of proposals and finance. So this is his background, just to give you guys an idea. And Chris, this is who Joel is, man. He's like the head honcho. When you're not getting, when you're at a stalemate, they run it up to Joel. Like, hey, Joel, what do we do here? This guy, Chris, is insane. Like, what do you want us to do? Right? Fun fact, Dan, three of those four CROs no longer exist. (laughs) They got merged, right? Like, they got That's the life of, yeah, that's the life of CROs. Acquired and... Soon you just don't see them anymore. <laughs> Brad says Joel's too smart to be talking to you, bozos. I agree. One hundred percent, man. It's like we don't deserve people like Joel. I'm here thinking, how can I make That's a good. meme after this? That's Joel's good. out here like analyzing the markets. Thanks, Brad. Brad. Absolutely right, Brad. Uh, so you have like that intro was necessary because that's the context of where you're coming from. You're not some dude from wall street giving yeah. your opinion. You've been on the heavily on the CRO side. I guess if you had to sum up your CRO career um, and the insights you've gained from working on that side of contracts and budgets and all that, yeah. what is it to the, that the public doesn't know? That, that pricing, the way you price your services and products is critically, critically important to the financial success of an organization. Um, and I, I, over 80% of what I do is focused on pricing. Uh, the rest of it is on how to financially manage you know, your projects, trials, et cetera, successfully. But I really found pricing was the passion. Uh, part of it is because my background's in economics. And so I'm just fascinated at how organizations 
determine and exchange value and money and things like that. So even before I entered the industry, I worked at Victoria's Secret. Uh, that was where my career was before I joined the industry, by the way. Uh, if before, I, before I joined the industry, um, I just always had a fascination with how companies price things and then, uh, and then how they deliver. But when I came into the industry, that int- introduced me to the world of services. And, um, and so that's why you know, I focus so much on pricing and, um, and, and there you go. So yeah, founder of Market Cap Consulting, that's just me. Um, Market Cap Consulting is me. I am Market Cap Consulting. And um, I work exclusively on the service and technology provider side of the industry. And um, because that's, that's my people. So Dan, just a, I guess a thought tangent to that, uh, what Joel just laid out there. We could have used his services about two days ago, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. We can, we can use the services any day, man. This is one of the reasons why I love this job of doing what I do is like meeting people like you and that I have. Honestly, I have no business meeting. Like Brad said, I mean, Brad's not off. Like we're just community site owners. Like we would never get to talk to people like you, Joel. And I mean, we're usually some budget guy and never get to yeah. Joel's level. Right. Um, we can do a whole podcast just on your career, and maybe that's part two. But this is the business of clinical research. And I do want to do a part two with just your career, like how you got in, the insights you've gained. And maybe, Chris, you want to join me on that one, too, because that's right up your alley with contracts and budgets. Yeah. But you said something interesting, Joel. You said service providers do very well in this space despite all the memes dr fox this one's for you man despite all the memes you may see or the complaints and i think both things can be true at the same time so explain your your thesis there or your observations maybe uh yeah the nearly all segments except for one that i'm sure we will talk about um are are performing extremely well financially. And, you know, even if they're having a little bit of hiccup over the past year, whether you're talking about CROs, sites, site networks, SMOs, labs, patient recruitment companies go on down the list with one exception, uh, they tend to be performing very well and, and certainly better than um, if you spend too much time on LinkedIn. And I mean that primarily on the site side. Um, you recently did a podcast called The Business of a CRO. And that was the first, you actually made a reference to me, the dude on LinkedIn. Yes. And <laughs> that's that's not the part that was interesting to me. You said, you know, this guy showed that the best site networks have better margins than the best CROs. What was interesting to me is what you said next. You said, you know, Chris and, Chris and I know that. So I know that. You guys know that. But Brad who popped up, Brad knows it. I don't think most other people do because they see things like <laughs> you mentioned Dr. Fox showing the table. One's filled with cash. One's not. And, Oh, guess which one has the cash the CROs and guess which ones, you know, sitting there, you know, looking at like a table that's been destroyed or something like that. It's a science. It's just not true. It's just not yeah. true in the vast majority of cases. I agree with both. You're correct. And Fox is correct on the short term, the cash flow. So sites are rich. 
accounts receivables if they're running their business, right? If not, I mean, they're going to go out of business. Soon. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's nothing there. Sites are rich accounts receivable wise. You're right. They're cash flow poor, cash flow negative. And this, and this is maybe what why PE likes sites right now. I think it's the flavor of the month, which in our industry tends to be about three years. Yeah, PE looks at potential relative to current circumstances. So they, they see the high EBITDA, they see the high paper earnings, they see cash flow lagging significantly, and that's their, that's their opportunity. Yeah, so Diane says, I love this discussion on budget specialists and clinical research, so it was so important to me. Okay, so why... Okay, so you've seen the shift. I mean, you've been in this industry long enough. You've seen the shift from, and there's a lot of shifts, and they're all like three years, and then they switch to something else. Like, what's the flavor of the month now, which is about three years? It used to be virtual trials. Then it was DCT. Before that, it was risk-based monitoring. So there's tools for all this stuff, right? There's like vendors pop up, startups pop up that are VC backed to to go after these like little ecosystems of the flavor of the month, right? Which again is like three years. DCT bubble, I think popped. I think most would agree. Is that the one that you said everyone's doing well with one exception? What is that? Yeah, that's, that's the exception. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that's a, that's a broad brush and there's some small and growing players there that, that I think are legit and are raising money um, successfully. But um, you know, there's a number, unfortunately, none of them are publicly traded. So I, I can't you know, sit here and tell you they're year over year <laughs> and things like that. Uh, but there's a number that you could just tell by substantial layoffs Um. Mm. Uh, continuing struggles. Um, you look at a company like Care Access, with a very public blow up with Pfizer over the Lyme Man. disease trial, things like that. Um, but you know what I respect about what they're doing is that they are they are trying to run clinical trials faster mm. than they want than they run before. I'm not talking about the quality of delivery. I'm not getting into any of that. I'm not an expert of that. But you know when I talk to these companies about their intentions, I like their intentions, which is just as clinical research started to get digitized, what, 20 some years ago with the EDCs and things like that, like they're, they're trying their best to make clinical trials run more quickly. And there's a huge economic upside to that. Whoever can crack the code of sustainably making clinical trials run faster. And that's why I think some part of why there is so much money going into not just sites and site networks, but also patient recruitment companies, because the ROI on a company that can pull that off um, is extremely high. And, but mm-hmm. you know, for my money, the companies that do the best at patient recruitment are physical sites. And the best site networks are getting better at it. The best sites and site networks are getting better at it uh, from what yeah. I see. And so that's, um, that pays off down the road. So Dan and I have always told, so, we take a lot of calls from individuals with business ideas in the industry. And we've told, I mean, it, you, I think we used to get at least one call a week on somebody with a business recruitment idea. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not as common anymore. Um, yeah. Because the good ones are getting, well, shout out one in health. They're yeah. super good. 
So my first told, client, by the way, first client. Ah, okay. Yeah. We've told each and every one of them, hey, if you if you come up with an idea that works in regards to biz, um, patient recruitment, easily a billion dollars, if if not tens of billions of dollars. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's really the item that slows everything down, right? I mean, if if you could cut timelines down by half, it's worth billions to sponsors. But the problem yep. is simultaneously, and well, real quick, it's it. worth uh, it's worth yep. billions to investors. Yeah, it's worth <laughs> sure. <laughs> the issue with this, though, like. And with what you said about PE, why they're excited. And I, I want to get to like maybe the macro reason of why they're excited in the context of what's happening in healthcare in general. There's a lot of consolidation in healthcare in general. Large systems are buying private doctor's offices. And that's that's happening in parallel to this consolidation here. I want to like see who's behind, who's the Wizard of Oz. There's probably 100 people that are trying to connect these things. If... I, I'm not smart enough to go like that far down. So maybe you are, but it's, it's not that consolidated. It's no. really not. It's really not. There's so many players out there and a um, hundred would actually be pretty well distributed. If you're talking about like, like organizations, whether it's PE investment firms, CROs looking to buy sites, things like that. Like that that's a lot of, that's a lot of potential buyers. Um, but you know, they're excited. They're happy by the prospects, but you know, forget private equity for a moment. That makes me happy. Like I want service providers in this industry to be successful. I want them to be worth a lot. The good news is that a lot of them are. And um, you know, that makes me happy because if service providers are successful financially, that tells me they're providing good service. They're running trials well. I told you before this call, I don't have a clinical bone in my body. I'm not an operations consultant. I'm not a medic. Um, I suck at science. Um, but, you know, I can tell when an industry is doing well and when it's not. And, you know, industry is doing well. You're yeah. checking except, the temperature of the industry. The industry is yeah, doing well. Yeah, you know, except except for the DCT side. And, um, you know, there are some exceptions there, but they just had they had access to so much free money during the world of zero interest rates in 2020, 2021. And even you know, as recently as a year and a half ago that, um, you know, they overhired, overstructured. And um, you know, they're paying for it now. And it makes me sad, but I can't blame them for doing what they did, <laughs> starting their companies and raising that kind of money in those years. But um, yeah, you know, they're, they're in a tough phase right now. So I think the best ones will come out of that, you know, through like a Darwinian process. And um, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I think the eventual future is bright for them. Some of them will latch on and I think CROs will buy them. The CROs wanted to buy the best. Yeah. yeah, not so sure about that last part there. Uh, Let's see, we'll see. DCT. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a. I've never been a fan of DCT, even when uh, first encountering their product in terms of what it actually does and what they're looking to do. Um, they still run into that that wall of patient recruitment, right? Yes, everything boils down to that, and as. It's funny. A funny thing happens as rates go higher. Investors care less about the Jetsons and they care more about the Flintstones. Like I need something like guaranteed, you know, like yeah. what? this is nice. Okay. You have this idea to disrupt the industry, but what about randomizing a patient like or two? Yeah. 
I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, right? So, and like this stuff's happening at this, like simultaneously, studies are getting more complex. This inclusion and exclusion is not getting easier. So Brad and I and Dr. Fox and Chris, we always talk about, well, we don't know the answer and hopefully this is not the case, but clinical research seems to be at its essence, like unscalable to some degree. Like there's aspects of it that are scalable, but the nitty gritty of like, get this patient in. I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily scalable. It's, it's hard to scale. And so, you know, if you, if you say, why would a, why would a company like a CRO acquire a, a series of sites or site networks? Because one way to deal with that is to bring in as many of those different services and capabilities into your own organization. And so you're looking at Acubia. Acubia is the 800-pound gorilla, but they're, they're like vacuuming up market share. And my sense of that is because they have a superior technology strategy and execution compared to a lot of their competitors. Um, it's, not, <laughs> it's not random that they're buying sites. Mm. You know, now as a sponsor, you, it's, it's more in a position where you can go to an IQVIA, you can go to a PPD with over 150 sites, you can go to an ICON with a lot more sites. And instead of going to a small CRO for a complex oncology trial where they're going to have to contract with each of the sites individually, they're going to have to contract with 10 to 15 vendors separately. We went through a lot of them earlier, labs, mm -hmm. recruitment vendors, et cetera, and so on. You, you truly get to more of a one-stop shop type of situation. So that makes it at least be perceived as easier by the sponsor that, oh, I can go to an IQV and I can sign one contract and they're only going out to a couple vendors, um, you know, versus feeling like you're signing up with, you know, 10 to 15 different companies to run a trial. That's the benefit to the sponsor. And I do believe that there is some scale of a company like, the ones that I just mentioned, having sites within their own vertical chain doesn't mean that they'll never go to external sites. It's not about that at all, but it reduce, it continues to reduce how much they have to go outside of their own ecosystem to run a trial start to finish. That's fascinating. And Dan, the, the kicker for CRO is that if these sites have higher margins than you, then you're going to be willing to pay up for them because it raises your overall margin profile. Investors right. love that, but as the, they should. But even on a small scale, I've never run a site bigger than three sites and 15 employees. I noticed even an anecdotally, like when I go from one site with two employees to three with 15, my margins go down too. Like it's, you just lose some efficiency to gain scale right and you also lose some quality to gain scale like if i if i'm the only coordinator it feels like this dan so you may lose some of that yeah. early on but then as you learn to centralize you know some of those back-end processes create some shared services then you can start to drive it back up some of the larger um, site networks that i worked with like yeah they go through that you know, they add a site maybe year one is tough but as they bring them into their centralized recruitment um, uh, services and things like that, then, I mean, that's the whole point of adding, um, you know, to their network over time is to, is to get that scale. But there's something still intrinsic about small business still being scrappier and more efficient, doing more with less. 
Like I've known sites that have sold and they were physician owned and they sold and the PIs stopped caring so much. Right. So, I mean, they can afford that because they're buying it and they can bring in someone else, but he or she's just a little bit less good <laughs> than their original. Right. Yeah. That's that stuff like fascinates me, but money continues to pour in. So let me ask you this. So we're going to answer some questions and Chris, feel free to man. Do you think PE is inspiring Ikevia and other CROs to do this, or do you think they're just following what they're doing? Uh, you know, Ikevia is, or uh, private equity is increasing the competitiveness and raising the overall price levels that, at which you have to buy these types of organizations. There's no, there's no question about it because they're going through bidding processes, right? Um, and so the more players in there, um, there you go. And, you know, these PE companies, even though, even though interest rates are super high right now, they're still able to raise funds and they're sitting on a lot of funds they raised when money was cheap. So, you know, they've got cash on the sidelines ready to deploy. And so you want to look for existing profitable companies where you see opportunities to increase that profitability, and especially if their cash flow is lagging, their paper profitability. Um, that, that's an excellent, that's an excellent target for you. And, um, you know, the, this conversation so far has been biased towards like the large publicly traded companies, but, you know, they're very active in the small and midsize um, space as well. And that's where I play and what I find just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. So the hypothetical question actually towards you, Dan. Chris loves this. I so from what you said there, Joel, if you were to acquire a site, an existing site, Right, and you're looking for something that's underperforming. What what items would you look at specifically to determine they're underperforming and where you could improve that? That was to Dan, right? Yeah, that's to Dan. First okay. thing I would look at is okay, are they using like tech? Are they there are there is some benefit, and I know Joel, you had some things to say about some tech vendor. We can get into that too. Are they leveraging tech? Like, are they being as efficient as they could? at their smaller scale, like things like e-source, e-reg. I'm a huge believer in that. And obviously I'm a Creo fan, supporter, user, loyalist. I think they're the best because they offer everything. Shout out to Creo. Uh, but there's things like Viva Site Vault, free. You want to streamline your regulatory process? You can hire someone to work from home and do all your regulatory with e-signatures, DOA, that's what I'm looking at. Then I'm looking at recruitment. Then I'm looking at biz dev. I'm looking at like those three things, operations, patient recruitment, and the biz dev. Like, can we get studies? Can we get patients? And can we not screw up our studies? And maybe can we improve the rate at which we are randomizing? Well, I mean, the two criteria, two of those criteria I'd agree with because <clears throat> the determining factors in, in top line is patient recruitment performance, right? So are you getting studies and are you recruiting for those studies? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if tech, again, my opinion, I don't know if tech improves top line. It may once you have some business, but if you're not seeing patients or you're not getting studies, your tech means nothing, right? Of course, yeah. So I don't know. I, I guess it's really a matter of do you have the personnel in place or do you are you getting the appropriate studies, right? And then uh, I'm just trying to think of what would improve maybe these institutions that are looking to acquire sites. I would never acquire a site. 
You would. We said that before. Yeah, and I know, I know. We would never, right? That's for PE. They have more money than us to lose. I would just rather start a site. You know why? As soon as I acquire that site, the stakeholders that made it run are gone, and now they're us. So I just bought myself more work. When I yeah. could have done that for free, Mary J. Blige had a good song. She said, I can do bad all by myself. <laughs> and on top of that, you're, I mean, like Dan said, yeah, you you lose the staff, primarily what this, the coordinators, but what about the PI as well, right? I mean, exactly. Now I got to go cater to him. Hey, PI, let's go to dinner every month. Check your temperature. Where are you at? Are you okay with me as your boss? Like, oh no, like, you know, let's get some wine. Like, what? I mean, that's all like, Come on, that's not like effortless, right? That's not passive. I don't know. I'm curious to get Joel's thoughts. Well, uh, first, this is where I want to give you a shout out, Dan, because you know I'm new to your work, and one of the things that um, I, I just I, I'm very grateful for is that you focus on helping people build careers, and um, I think you give extremely good advice on on how to approach things entrepreneurially. You know, how to. Thank you. Thank you whether it's bootstrapping a business or doing it, you know, for as little upfront capital as possible, that's absolutely doable. And there's some amazing success stories there. And then helping people build careers. Like even if you're doing an hour on the business of a CRO, you tie it back to people's careers. And um, I just think that's amazing. So if there's anyone listening to this, as ah, was me you. earlier this year, listening to Dan for the first time. Um, yeah. We're, you know, we're, we're sitting here kind of, you know, shooting the crap on, on CROs and private equity companies and things like that. But, um, you know, st stick around for Dan's <laughs> career advice. Oh, and you, it's, it's legit. It's legit. Yep. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, like, and there's going to be people, maybe we'll get into some of these comments, but I don't think me saying I would never buy a site is going to stop PE from buying sites. <laughs> like, they're like this guy in a hoodie and wearing a hat half the time. No, no shit. We're smart. We're from, Wharton, like, you know, fuck this guy. But, yeah. you know, there's some, I think there's some truth, like, on the small scale. I'd rather just go start a new site than buy one. I'd buy a distressed one. At, yeah. I'd consider yeah. it, at least. Like, hey, I'll take over. You can't make payroll. I'll take over your payroll. Give me, like, you know, but that's more, like, yeah. semi-predatory at that point. Uh, what what I'd look for, <laughs> to take, um, to point Chris's question at me, is it, I'm a very financially oriented guy when it comes to metrics and and things like that so i would let dan you know review <laughs> review their operations and tech stack and things like that I, you know, I would look at their margins just from a very traditional standpoint but then especially for the site side i would look at their receivables efficiency um you know for all the reasons we know um, the way payment schedules are structured and, and things like that but you know i i would i would dig in deep as to how on top of the receivables they actually are. And I'm not talking about like, are you following up when you're getting paid late? Are your reconciliations in order? Are you billing everything that you should be? Are you capturing your invoiceables? Um, what's your, what's your, um, what's your agents look like on your auto pays? Do you, do you have duplicate revenue hitting? It is amazing how much duplicate revenue I have seen in working with site networks over the past year. And again, I, Chris, I just used the term site networks because I'm talking about companies where you know, I see their financials across multiple sites that they own. Don't worry. No and one knows the difference. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's almost like what's your internal aging on your financial process? And do, do you have a clean month end every month, every quarter, 
Um, Dan, I, mean I, I know you're, I, I know you're a big Creo yeah, fan. Yeah, love it. Love um, it. And my understanding is they have a great CTMS, but I, you know, I, I see some networks really struggle when they try to use that to manage their, um, you know, their, their revenue and yeah. aging. I think any tech stack is going to struggle with that, but um, you know, just mm-hmm. are you managing holdbacks effectively? I would look at, are you still writing contracts with holdbacks in them? Cause you shouldn't be. Ah. In fact, in fact, you should be writing contracts where you're paid for a patient up front. Wow. And, um, Chris. Yep. Well, Chris is guys, nice as long as you're performing. Good. Yeah. As long as you're a high performing site with a high reputation. Yes. You can ask and achieve getting paid for one or two um, patients worth of upfront payments instead of a, Five or God forbid, ten or fifteen percent holdback, which I think is unethical, but just unnecessary to agree to anymore. Hold on, hold on. Okay, I'm gonna pass to Chris right here, but let me just preface this. Chris, the last two budgets we got, you did amazing, man. That's a shameless plug for our site network and our services. But look, I put, I have to go. I, I'm at the point I don't even look at the budgets Chris does. It's just, yeah, whatever you think is right, let's do it. So I, I have to put it in Creo CTMS, right? Like when I program a budget, I have to go put the numbers in. I looked at this last one. I'm like, whoa, holy crap. All screen failures paid, zero hold back. I'm Good. like, this is so amazing. Like, And not to mention the fees we're getting. It's something like 38% overhead. <laughs> what do you think about this, Chris? Like what, what Joel just said, like no hold back. That's not always possible. I noticed something interesting. Sponsors are okay with that. Zeros are not. So generally speaking, oh, that. sorry, go ahead, Joel. Uh, yeah, a typical CRO contract, the CRO is paid 10 to 20% of their entire budget on signature. 10 to 20%. So if a CRO so signs it, yeah, Zero signs a new contract, say for $10 million, direct fees and pass-throughs, which most of those pass-throughs are your budgets. Yeah, that, that contract will say, on signature, you'll pay us a million dollars. That million dollars will be held until the end of the trial, and it'll be reconciled until the end. So when you're dealing with a CRO from a budget negotiation standpoint, the key thing to know is that CRO already has your funds in hand, all right? CROs are like the opposite of sites when it comes to cash flow, Dan. They have lower margins, but their cash flow is almost always well ahead of their actual profitability because they're paid in advance and they hold that money until the end of the trial, even five-year, you know, longer-term oncology trials. So, it's not always like that. You know, some are more sophisticated, but if you're dealing with a CRO and they're giving you crap about a holdback, if, if, a, if a CRO convinces a site to take a 10% holdback, that's just more money the CRO gets to hold on to, earning what's now, what, 5.3% interest for multiple years. Not, a, not as big of a deal three years ago when interest rates were zero. Um, I made the mistake of looking at my savings account where it's still earning 0.1%. But um, you, know, you, can earn, you can earn 5% on that now. And so you know, your counterparty is already holding your money, whether it's the CRO or the biotechs. So if you agree to a holdback, you're just disrespecting yourself at this point. Wow. Chris, what do you think about Either that? Either that or you're ignorant. Seriously. 
Chris, you're what are your thoughts, or, man? If, if you're not ignorant, you're disrespecting yourself, please, Chris. Sir. That's spicy. <laughs> Let's sure, go. So, I mean, there it's is bad, man. <laughs> well, there is rationale to a holdback, right? No, uh, no, no. What's the rationale? Convince because, because at the end of the trial, they still need to collect information from the sites, and if holdbacks, if there is no holdback, they have no, they have no financial strings over the site. If everything's been paid, right? And they need work performed by the site. Why does the site have to fulfill those obligations? Work has been performed. No, no, no. So, again, I'm not battling for the sponsors of the CROs here. But I'm telling you, there is a rationale behind holdback, right? And that rationale is, let's say there's some data that they find problems with, right? And the CRO or the sponsor reaches out to the site. And they've been paid for everything. The site's been paid. Right? There is no holdback. They've received everything. What strings do they have to make the site perform in terms of the work they now need done? If they've that's been a, paid that's a closeout for fee. That's, that's a closeout fee. Yeah, but there's oftentimes even then, it doesn't happen too often, but I've seen it happen twice at my own personal sites in which they need something performed after the closeout fee. Right? But... That's assuming even when that does occur, you've probably been paid on holdback at that point as well, right? Yeah, there's just there's no good rationale for holdbacks um, in this day and age. Even if there is some verification that needs to happen at the end of the trial, that doesn't mean that there needs to be payment associated with that. There are contractual remedies that they have you know, to force that performance. But to hold back ten percent, absolutely. 10%. I, I could see maybe a one percent holdback. If you're going to do a holdback, do one percent. I'll give you an example in CRO world. A lot of times, a CRO will be paid on a milestone payment schedule. You get ten percent when the contract signed, X percent first patient in, etc. At the very back end of that, maybe they get paid X dollars when the CSR is is written and signed off, and then maybe often the last one is the TMF is reconciled if it's if it's assuming it's digital. There's maybe like half a percent or 1% tied to those things. And I tell CROs, if you put 5 or 10% on that, you just agreed to a holdback. There's no reason for that. If 99% of your labor has been performed by that point, then 99% of your fees should be in your Certainly. bank account. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's ridiculous when, uh, and it's usually CROs, but sponsors yeah. too <laughs> will have holdbacks of 10, 15, I've seen even 20%. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's ridiculous. Absolutely, it's uh, ridiculous. You just don't. You don't have to agree to it. You know, maybe if you're like, maybe if you just opened a site, yeah, you're trying. You're trying to get business, and that seems like a deal breaker. Go for it, all right? And then just manage it. Manage it responsibly. Don't hire up too quickly. Deal with the cash flow consequences. But if you're a high performing site with a good brand, you do not need to agree to that. And if someone's giving you a hard time about agreeing to it, you just say, we don't accept holdbacks. That's all you have to say. And then if they ask you again, oh, actually, you know, that's really important to us. You say, we don't accept holdbacks. That's what you say. And then the third time, you just don't respond. They'll sign the damn contract, Chris. All right. Yeah. It's not going to be a deal breaker that I need to have this unethical hold over you on a three or four year trial. Um, in order to do business with you. So you work if with you're a, a strong high performing site. 
So, okay, so I'm actually legitimately curious about this question. So you work for a lot of CROs in terms of contracts, right, and budgets. Yep. So is it, is it a negative reflection on a CRO if they lose a site, right? So they report to the sponsor, we've selected this site, I assume. This is what it looks like. We've selected this site. Um, we're going to award them the trial. The sponsor approves of that in some regard, right? Yep. I assume this is what this looks like in terms of site selection. Um, so the sponsor is aware of the site, the CRO starts negotiating the budget, and then for whatever reason, they can't come to agreement. So they let the site go. So that reflect poorly in terms of. It wouldn't happen like that. Yeah. It wouldn't happen like that. So, you know, the CRO sends out the contract, the site will provide feedback. They'll disagree with some terms that the sponsor has said, the contract template needs to have these terms. And the CRO and the sponsor will agree in advance on fallback positions. So, um, so uh, for example, I mean, let's use holdback. Um, the, the, the CRO will not say, hey, sponsor, you need to have it. We, we're going to put a 10% holdback in, in the template. They'll work on, okay, what, what should that be, if any, in the contract template that we're going to send out to all the sites? Let's say they say it's 5%. The CRO and sponsor will often further agree of what happens if a site says they will not accept the holdback. And the, then the, the CRO and the sponsor will pre-agree that either, okay, you need to come back to us to get that approved, or it's okay to agree to it, all right? So fallback positions, fallback parameters, there's different kind of interchangeable terms around it. But what's not going to happen is a CRO is going to send a contract out, they're going to negotiate it multiple, multiple rounds with difficult provisions, and then the sponsor finds out, oh, it didn't work out, we let them go. They're going to know along the way that oh, the site didn't agree to these five things. The, C the, the CRO and the sponsor will talk about it. CRO will go back, almost like a real estate agent type situation, right? They're negotiating on the sponsor's behalf. Sponsor knows what's going on. The real estate agent's not going to come back to you and say, hey, I didn't, I didn't get your house sold because, so, because the they they're going to talk to you about it. Yeah. Sponsors are already agree with the CRO letting go of this study or letting it's, go of this site. The, the sponsor would have to, especially in that, which would be a pretty dire situation, the sponsor would have to agree to letting that site go. The CRO is not going to say, we let that site go. <laughs> the sponsor would say, okay, you're fired, <laughs> right? Like you can't, you can't do that. You can't okay. do that. So this is interesting because, and we're going to get to the comments right now, guys. Like, subscribe, comment, share. If you're listening on podcasts, now is your time to like, subscribe, comment, share. Like do it right now and then go follow Joel. What happens when the CRO is negotiating a contract, like you just said, with their own sites? There are firewalls in place. Now, Dan, how strong are those? <laughs> it, just, it just gets into each company. Um, I think I put out the example um, in, in my post on Monday that I once, I once interviewed for a company with a premier site that I think everyone listening to this would recognize where, you know, I went down to Tennessee. I interviewed for a position at their CRO. Their CRO, I think, was on the seventh floor, took up to seventh and eighth floors. Their SMO was on the fifth and sixth floors. And, and this extremely well-known site was down the street. They owned it all. And, and actually, I linked to it because it's on their website, Sarah Cannon. Um, you can go on their website. I, I put it on my LinkedIn and you can see, like, on our services, hey, here's our site, here's our CRO, here's... Here's our SMO. They offer, um, they offer all that. And, and um, 
and now I'm not speaking about them individually, but these companies you know, do have do have uh, firewalls where they're on different email servers. If they're all in the same physical office building, you, you know, the CRO person can't get into the uh, um, SMO floor and, and things like that. And part of that is, be, is part of being able to demonstrate fair market value. I don't like that term either, but to be able to demonstrate mm-hmm. that there was an arm's length transaction in this contract um, negotiation. But it is, you know, it is on the face of it problematic and it's not, um, it's caused <laughs> me some angst at some points, but all in all, I'm okay with it. Um, though, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little awkward. Yeah, I mean, even maybe there's nothing wrong with it. I don't know, but you got you can't tell me if somebody doesn't have the key to every floor. Uh, you know, there's people that are very influential within that organization that can make things happen. <laughs> when yeah, I think comes a, to an important thing to know is that a sponsor has to approve every single site that is brought onto a study, and so you know the sponsor will be fully informed that hey. 10 of your 12 sites are in our, our own, are owned by us. Of course. Right? I think that's important. I used to work for um, a CRO Chiltern whose parent company owned Endpoint Clinical, one of my favorite IRT companies, love them. And uh, they own like 90 some percent of, of Endpoint. And so you would think, oh, Chiltern just sent all of its, whenever a sponsor needed IRT services, Chiltern would send it all to Endpoint. No, it was a case by case situations because CROs are paid to help sponsors pick the right vendors and sites um, for these trials. And, but yeah, I mean, there's always a natural um, motivation or incentive, right? To use your own sites if you own them. That's why you bought them. This one, we'll come back to this. Sorry to cover your face. Ethan says, I caught the tail end. We're going to get into questions. I caught the tail end of the valuation of the 30 sites. Can you repeat the basic details of that? What was publicly said was that um, by a QPCO is that they paid around $300 million for CCT. And my expert analysis of their website was that they have about 30 locations, which comes out to about 10 million per site. I asked IQV Investor Relations to clarify some of that. They never got back to me. Hmm. Um, I'm not gonna go beyond that, but. But um, Dan, actually, maybe you guys could hit the second part of that, which is what's an appropriate cash reserve at a site? Because that's a very practical question. Yeah, Chris, maybe you handle this one. You advise sites on this all the time. What's an appropriate cash reserve? I mean, I prefer six months, but I think that's up to the individual and how comfortable they are running thin margins, thin backup, whatever the case might be. I prefer six months. It's kind of like Dave Ramsey, right? You're supposed to have six months of uh, of your expenses covered in case of an emergency. I think that applies to, and I'm not a big Dave Ramsey fan, but I think that applies to businesses. I don't know, Joel. I'm what do a, you hey, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think six months is reasonable for any business, um, especially a business like sites that has significant number of employees and other other items that they have to take into account right they have to pay patients and other things and that can fluctuate maybe you don't have a lot of expenses in terms of patient stipends and then all of a sudden you're enrolling tons of patients you don't want to run low on cash 
next question is from our boy Lee. Oh, were you going to say something, Joel? Nope. Lee, our boy Lee. Lee knows what's up. Do you think? Do you do you know Lee, Joel? Uh, no, no. I'm I'm curious though. Lee, man, go introduce yourself to Joel, man. He's a must. Okay. He's like you guys think the same. Do you think companies like pharma or CROs being too vertically integrated will raise flags with the FDA? It really seems like we're losing a series of checks and balances that exist. Not that I've seen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the FDA side, so I would love to. I would love to read about that. Um, I would love to see some some bona fide experts weigh on weigh in on that. Yeah, it's. I mean, theoretically, it's not. A, it shouldn't be an issue, like you said. Like if there's enough firewalls in between. I've known. I've worked for as a contractor. Uh, yeah phase one clinics and a lot of CROs have been owning phase one sites forever. Like since before yep. I got in the industry, which people didn't really realize, but, and then a lot of these phase one sites either get acquired by a CRO or become a CRO because a biotech reaches out to them first as a site and say, Hey, we want to do a healthy volunteer study. And then the site probably tells them, Hey, you need a CRO, well, we can do this too. We have a separate system, all the stuff you just said, Joel. So um, it's not, it organically happens. It just hasn't organically happened in the phase two through four. Uh, because by that point, the sponsor already has a plan or like a vendor for managing. But now money, you know, the book Capital written by Thomas Piketty, this is like what's playing out here, you know. Return on cash. I mean that. There. This is the whole point of this podcast today. So we're kind of in a new era, and not to mention the IRBs, okay, that own sites. Like, and I'm sure they're gonna tell you. They'll have like ten people from Ivy Leagues telling you, "Well, check out this white paper we wrote on the ethical segmentation of what we do." Yeah, that's fine. But at the end of the day, the IRB's primary responsibility is patient safety and ethics. So you can't tell me there's not possibly a conflict of interest when an IRB owns sites, reviews the protocols, probably has a hand in the tech. And by the way, they're PE back to you. Right? So just putting it out there. Just no comment. I mean, that's um, yeah, and and that's yeah. Could be and because I, I just know. don't. I don't have strong feelings on on that side of it. I just don't. I mean, I'm coming around to it because these companies are. I used to be like vehemently opposed to it, like just from a purist, and probably because I'm a little salty. Like these are the big guys, you know. We're small. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I'm starting to see the other side like you said if they're getting big enough to where they can actually justify like hey these are separate business units altogether i can come around to it at least in theory but where the rubber meets the road there's connections like these things are integrated they're not yep. actually separate company <laughs> yeah and you know then if this really takes off um you know, it, it's something that I'm going to have to think a lot more through the ethical side of it for what it's worth. And in, in the real life situations I've experienced on this, I have not seen 
um, inappropriate behavior doesn't mean it's never happened. But right. if this, if yeah, if it really, if it really takes off, if it becomes a thing um, where it's commonplace for CROs to, to own sites, then uh, I have a feeling even the FDA may, may weigh in on that, um, or at least yeah. review it. Maybe, maybe we got a lot of questions here. Let's get it. Kevin, Kelvin might cover not just your face, Joel, but all of ours. It's a tsunami comment. Oh no, only yours. Uh, <laughs> Decentralized clinical trials, the fresh new wave of the electronic future, or so they say. I like this guy. He's put a wave in his thing, the synchronicity. It's as if remote monitoring, electronic capture, and other not so new tools haven't been part of clinical trials for ages. But let's all pretend this is groundbreaking, even though it's more like putting a new label on the old bottle. After all, who doesn't love emphasizing a trend as if it's fundamentally a new approach? I mean, yeah, I agree, Galvin. Um, I think there it's getting more powerful, though. Like, there's elements of DCT, like e-consent, amazing, right? Amazing. That's an element of DCT I have no problem with. What Creo's doing, right? E-source. They give the sponsor the back end. Hey, if you use enough sites with Creo, you get the EDC. We'll just throw it in there and you get data management. We're working on a small CRO project with Creo. There's no need for an EDC vendor. As long as the sites use Creo, that's the EDC. So, I mean, there's benefits to this too. Like DCT and that's, is that considered DCT? Who knows anymore? Like DCT is going to be a bad word now, like SMOs were. But now I guess SMOs are coming back in favor. I'll, I'll tell you, Dan, you know, I mean, I, I have worked with several DCT companies, but in terms of like what what takes up my mind and, and, and absorbs a lot of my analysis, it's not those companies, it's not because I don't like them. It's because um, even though they grab a high percentage of the attention and conversation on social media, um, they're still an extraordinarily tiny player in the economics of, of clinical research. And so uh, I continue to focus the majority of my um, time and attention on the companies that do drive the vast majority of economics. That's sites, that's CROs, and then that's the ecosystem of vendors around them because that's, that is still what's driving it. And I can't remember if, if I'm repeating myself or it was before we started, but you know, someday the, someday the, the, the best will arise from the DCT crowd, you know, through a Darwinian process. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that there will be important contributions to make, but I will correct something I said earlier that Chris, you challenged me on. I think you're absolutely right. I said, yeah, CROs will buy them. And that was a flippant comment that was very likely, uh, will very likely be proven to be wrong because as soon as I said it, I was like, well, IQB has been building out those functionalities as has several of the other bigs. What's interesting is that the small and mid-sized are still trying to partner up with the DCT. The small and mid-sized zeros are still largely partnering up um, with the DCTs, and that's proving to not be a successful strategy. Proving not to be. Interesting. Proving not to be, yeah. And why? Well, because a lot of the trials end up just going to physical sites. So you wow. waste a lot of time and effort on a partner that even if it had worked out, you're partnering out all that revenue. You're partnering whatever profitability is there and um and, and again a sponsor would you know, prefers to work with companies that have as much of the services in-house as possible instead of feeling like okay wow we just effectively signed up with multiple cro's <laughs> multiple service agreements and all that stuff too interesting 
Yeah, we're we're in the middle of a CRO bid, so we we're playing a little bit. Like we're getting a small taste. I mean, we're yeah. we have no intention of competing with Ikevia, but there's a lot of opportunities on the extremely small end of the long tail yeah. of small sponsors that I mean, Ikevia wouldn't even give them their D team, right? And still charge like 10 times what a niche zero would charge. And there's something interesting about strategic partnerships with zeros and functional tech vendors like like Creo using EDC as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, maybe a TMF being integrated somehow. Um, so I think even the term DCT, it's become like so ugly and so like convoluted. No one really knows what that actually means anymore. Yeah, that's why I just I don't pay a lot of attention to the terminology around it. I just I, I focus on what's you know really driving the industry forward yeah. again from an economics economics um, standpoint. But you know for you know especially for your listeners, um, you know one thing I don't want them to 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 leave a lot of the social media conversation around site to CROs thinking is that. It's impossible to start up a site at low cost and that you're going to be broke for the first couple of years. That's where I encourage them to listen to um, some of your other shows. And then, but, you know, I do want to temper people on the CRO side. There was a, a comment made on one of the, on the previous shows, not by you guys, was that, um, oh, CROs with 500 people have a billion dollars in revenue. And that's just, um, to say that that's false is like, I mean, that is just like so... Uh, that zeros need 500 people to have a billion dollars of revenue. A bunch of CROs have billions of revenue that they have 200% margins on, C on CRAs, all this stuff. It's not just true. It is very difficult to start up a CRO. But if you do it successfully, you don't need to win a lot of studies. You win a $3 million study as a CRO where say it's just you and your spouse owning the CRO with a series of contractors. Um, You'll, you'll never go back to work for a company again. Oh, never. life-changing. <laughs> life-changing. Yeah. Especially if you're it's hard a hard to CRA. win those first couple ones. It's very hard to win those first couple ones, but it's, it's yeah. life-changing when you do. And you don't need to have 500 people. You don't need to have anything like that. And maybe that's like there's two, two extremes of what's happening is consolidation on one end and then lifestyle businesses on the other. Consolidation and, is always opportunity. It's always opportunity on the small scale side. Um, it's always there because plenty of companies don't want to work with consolidated companies. They always gravitate towards smaller service providers. And so that's the opportunity. The more consolidation there is, the better it is for folks like us mm -hmm. on this call, running small organizations like yours, sitting here as an independent consultant who sometimes has to go up against large, well-known consulting companies. It's that's the opportunity. I don't care what big consulting companies do. I don't care if they merge up. They do. That's just more opportunity for me. If more sites get bought by CROs, if more sites come together, that's more opportunities for people to start their own sites. Well, another interesting thing happens from a career perspective when consolidation occurs. You have all these lifelong employees. I've, I've interviewed dozens of them in the last year yeah. that I, off the top of my head. I've been with CRO XYZ for 15 years. Once the merger happened, that was my catalyst to go out on my own. Yeah. Like that happens over and over again. So not just the not just the consolidation uh, is creates the opportunity, but it also creates 
a career demand because the best employees tend to leave. Yeah, that part is brutal. But I mean, that's a big reason why I'm out on my own. I told you yes. three of three of the four CROs I worked at no longer exist, PRH, Altern, and Centeract. And I was like, well, I feel like a free agent, so I might as well go be one. And so after Cineos closed on Cineos, I, I flipped that around. After Cineos closed on Centeract, I moved on and uh, went out on my own in June 2021. Were you point. like shown to the door or did you no. just say, you know what, screw this, like, I don't like this? No, I just, over my career, Dan, I gravitated from the large CROs. I mean, I was at PRA when it was 1,500 people. Hmm. Uh, when it got bought by Icon, it was almost 20,000. Icon is 41,000 wow. people. So I said, I didn't want to work for the big CROs, nothing personal against people who are there. But every time I went to a mid-sized CRO, Chiltern got bought out by a big, went to Cineos, got bought out by a big. I'm like, well, this will probably keep happening. So, so um, yeah, now I, now I don't have to worry about getting bought out by a big CRO, basically. But now but I still happening. love working with those companies, yeah. But now the same thing's happening. History rhymes on the site side, at least the big site side for now, and maybe even the small. I know I have colleagues that are getting offers. I mean, we got offers. We're yeah. we're a startup. We weren't worth anything when we're getting these offers. I told them, chill, come back in like three years, and we can yep. talk. Let me build something. There's nothing right now. <laughs> uh, but they're thirsty, man. They're thirsty. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just want people to be optimistic about the industry and, and the entrepreneurial um, opportunities there. Yeah. It's there. And if you're an employee and you, you need to start thinking about these things too, like, Oh, my company's going to take care of me. Well, what happens when they consolidate? Like your company is not your company anymore. And yeah. you got to have a skill set. You got to figure out. It. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just, I mean, some, and then the lifestyle business on the low end of the long tail like CRA, CRA makes what, like 90 to 120K, um, maybe 150. Traveling on a plane three days a week, you know, 12 visits a month, maybe missing out on family life and not to mention the circadian rhythms. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. They Dan, my up. wife uh, did, did four cost side audits when she was in the industry. And so, yeah, she ah. traveled. She was in the QA department of, of a CRO and um, all the stuff, the stuff she saw. Right, we, we can do a thing <laughs> on that. I don't, I don't think she'd be too happy about that. But, man, she saw some stuff. But, yeah, the travel. Yeah, she traveled like a CRA. It was intense. So you lived it. You know, like lived it. 90, hard. 150K. And then you start thinking, okay, well, if I can start putting pieces together, maybe I could be like a boutique arm or a boutique vendor maybe not a full cro but a, a boutique vendor of a pharma or a cro like carla veranava she started out as a receptionist at a site she specialized oh, yeah. in phase one you gotta meet her joel phase receptionist at a site immigrant from nicaragua um receptionist at a phase one clinic became a recruiter became a coordinator became a qa they got merged into a, a CRO. Then she learned monitoring. No bachelors. Now she runs a consulting firm helping just on phase one QA and rescue audits. Like Love making that. bank quintupled. I don't know her numbers. She makes bank. <laughs> She's not making CRA money. Let's put it that way. You no, know I man, good for her. That, that 
that's I love that stuff. And how love many of those stuff. stories there are out there that we don't know about? I mean, there's a lot. So this industry oh, you found me. a lot. Yeah, you found there, me. There you yeah. go, man. Yeah. I mean, geez. They they caught the gig economy is real. And it's a side effect of the consolidation, I think. Great stuff. We got more. Do you have more, a little more time? Like we got more questions, or you got to go? A little more time. Yep. Yep. This is great, Joel. We got to do part two and three. And I know who you're referring to now from that CRO business side, Robert. I got to get you and Robert on. We yeah. can do a debate. We can do a debate. I'll just be in between. <laughs> I don't know the CRO world. And Chris can be on too. You could be there for like emotional support or something. Or like, <laughs> you'll probably like add more than I will. We got to do a part two. Part two, I still want to do your career though. And then part three, maybe with Robert. Um, you guys will actually find a lot of common ground, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Kevin, Kelvin, what strategies or tools have proven effective in ensuring that the budget and coverage analysis are accurate, compliant, and aligned with the overall objectives of the trial? Chris Joel, what do you think? Chris? Sorry, give me a moment. Chris is reading emails. Go. Man. Go. You got, yeah. you got uh, budgets or something. Chris is cranking out like 80 contracts a month. 80 contracts, budgets a month. Dude is an animal. What strategy? This is up your alley, man. Kelvin, what strategies or tools have proven effective in ensuring that the budget and coverage analysis are accurate, compliant, and aligned with the overall objectives of the clinical trial? Mm, consultants. Oh, thanks. Uh, is that a shout out to me? <laughs> Indirectly, probably. <laughs> well, I, what tools? I mean, I don't. What tools are there? There's nothing. There's nothing to help you in that regard. Yeah, uh, if we're I mean, talking the site side, tools. yeah, you're 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 price takers, right? In terms of you receive the the proposed budget. Now you hopefully like have your own standards. So okay, try to try to get into some of Kelvin's questions here. When when you need to have standards. Um, around like the, the minimum that you would accept for certain services. And even if that can vary by therapeutic area or type of trial, et cetera, you need to have some standards. How do you set those standards? One is benchmark. So I find that the site community is pretty tight. A lot of people know each other. There's no reason why you can't know what five of your closest friends charge you know, for an ICF, right? Or different types of procedures, you know, or liver biopsy or whatever, right? There's, there's no reason that you all can't talk about it. And if you don't have many friends, there are resources like grant plan and grant manager and such, which provide external benchmarks. And then like Chris, you've mentioned there are external people who, um, you know, can do that work for you and, um, and provide you those benchmarks. So you have the external benchmarks and then too, uh, you have your internal benchmarks. You don't have to do this for all your services, but how long does it take you to perform some of those procedures by which people? And sorry to sound like impersonal about it, how much do those people cost? And then you know, what's, the, what's the sum total of that labor effort relative to the price that you're getting? I.e., are you making enough of an internal margin on those tasks to make it worthwhile? If your internal effort is out of whack with the external benchmark, that means that you have an inefficient process but so, you want to look at you want to look at both because um if you only look at if you only look at if you don't look at the benchmark you only look at your internal cost and you're super efficient at what you do you're going to undercharge 
you're going to leave a lot of money on the table. But if you only look at benchmarking without regards to your internal cost structure, um, you could be performing a lot of services and, and losing money on them. But, but worst of all, just not knowing. So different ways of making sure that your budget, I don't know about the compliance and that piece of what he asked about, but how to make sure it's accurate and, and profitable is to know whether the price that you're agreeing to or sending out um, at least meets your internal standards and that you're not leaving money on the table. Go ahead, please. So to expand on what Joel said there, um, unfortunately in this industry, there is no standard for the most part, right? So really the way that it works, some sponsors, it's funny because I was just texting somebody else about this that's watching this. Um, the way it works in this industry, some sponsors will pretty much give you everything you ask for, mm -hmm. right? But you can't base your future budgets on those parameters because they won't be correct. You're not going to get it with other sponsors. So you have to make a decision. Is this study worthwhile? And this is what Joel, I think, is getting at. You have to make decisions on whether or not it's worthwhile for you to do a study if the sponsors are not going to meet your request. And this happens. I mean, we have one person that we've worked with, um, Dan and I, and she has her bare minimums, and it's on each and every line item. And if they won't meet those minimums, she's not taking the trial, period. And I've seen her refuse to take trials. Like, listen, yeah. we can't agree. Here's my minimums. If you're not going to meet those, yeah. we're done. Yeah. And sponsors walk away. So there's unfortunate, like I said, unfortunately, you can't just do one or two budgets and understand the industry in terms of what you're going to get for a trial because there are no standards. Um, you know, once you have some experience, then you kind of have a better idea of, of what is reasonable, what isn't. There's really just in my experience, I just call it kind of a fair realm, right? Yeah. Here's the low side of fair. Here's the high it's, side. It's of your fair. intuition, Chris. It's what I call price discovery. It's yep. through the course of many years negotiating these things. Your, exactly. your subconscious is discovering the right price ranges. Yep. And um, I'll get zeros to ask me like, yeah, zeros will ask me like, what's the what's the prevailing market rate for a CRA? It's a range. It's not an yep. exact number. Not, not everybody's sitting exactly. there charging two twenty an hour for a CRA. It's a range. Yep. You have to, you have to exactly accept right. variability. Yeah. Yep. Mm. There are no standards, unfortunately. It'd make the industry much more simple if it were for all things, right? Uh, hourly rates for employees. What's this line item? We're paying the sites from a CRO or, or sponsor level, but there just isn't. I mean, there absolutely is not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are standardized methodologies for, for doing the cost rates of your employees and things like that. And there are standard approaches. Um, but even those can vary from sponsor to sponsor, right? Or yeah. from CRO oh, to CRO. Organization to organization. Yep. 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 And, and you also don't have to do a time and motion study. You don't need to sit there with a camera like uh, the original management consultant, Frederick Taylor did, where he would do like, he didn't have a camera, but he would like sit there and watch people sew and say, okay, that took that person 5.2 minutes. Now, you don't need to get down into the weeds of time and motion studies, but you, know, you should know how long it takes a coordinator to you know, sit with someone during a certain procedure, and which makes them unavailable for other types of work and what the economic cost of that is. And um, you don't have to do that for all of your services, but the ones that drive your economics, I, well, I certainly advocated. Hmm. Another thing, uh, observation is the decentralization of knowledge. You know, it's like Chris's answer is complete when he said a consultant. 
that, that's how you know because yeah. there's people like Chris, like Joel, like Dr. Fox, who does a really good job for sites. There's probably others that we don't know. For sure, there's others we don't know that do this and offer these services yeah. and kind of levels the playing field, I think. But this is why networking is so important if you're out there watching. And by the way, I got to say, retention, if retention in studies is used as a metric, like retention of viewers on this video has been through the roof, Joel. Really? Okay. We have not dropped off for a Friday. This is performing <sighs> asymmetrically. PE would want to buy this live stream. 10x. I know, 10X. I know a guy. <laughs> They'll buy this live stream. We'll make it NFT and sell it, man. Um, I, I one... think if, if I can just make uh, mention one thing on, on, on Chris, we were talking about, he's saying, you know, he knows, you know, he knows what pricing to charge. I, th I think a benefit of external objective advice on that is intuition can get stuck at a, at a point in time. And um, so I wrote the other day, is like someone can sit there, I'll use a zero example and say, you know, building an EDC should cost hundred K. Um, I've seen examples where you dig in with that person, that, that information can be five or 10 years old. Yes. Because you just have like this nice round number. And um, if the people doing that work are paid a lot more than they used to be, um, if the builds are more complex or on the reverse side, they're simpler. Like, you know, in, intuition can get outdated if you're in your bubble. There's nothing wrong with being in your bubble, but it could be time to talk to someone who's not in a, <laughs> not in a bubble. But um, that's why well, I just encourage people, especially through periods of high inflation, mm -hmm. expectations around what things should cost get outdated very, very quickly. 120% accurate. Absolutely correct. So even in what I do, um, for a short while, I probably was asking too little in terms of budget requests. Uh, thankfully, I received a couple of budgets that were quite higher initially from the sponsors than I was used to. Yeah. And I realized very quickly, yeah, I haven't been asking for yep. that. That's when you did. So yep. thankfully, thankfully, I, for, my, for our Dan and our clients, <laughs> they didn't suffer too much. Uh, yep. But a few did, honestly. Just because I was, I just, I, as you described, I was stuck in my my zone, right? This is how it's been. This is how it continues to be. So hopefully anybody who does this is aware of that factor, that things do change and be aware of that. Yeah, you know, be willing to learn, but don't don't beat yep. yourself up if you underpriced the first few things. I'm a pricing consultant. I underpriced my first several projects when I went out on my own. It happens. I probably did beat myself up over it, but you got to be willing to learn and yep. discover the appropriate prices and then adjust them over time. And is it a, f a factor of like not being insular? Like, is this a good plug for saveoursites.com or? Uh, go for it. Yeah. Networking. Um, like Durham, I remember, Chris, we had a Durham study at the time. You weren't that experienced with Durham, maybe. And you were like, nah, from my experience, Durham are like low budget. Then you saw one of our budget. You're like, wow, this one's actually pretty high. So it kind of changed your opinion on Durham yeah. as the Durham started seeing a bull market. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was like you caught it at the early end. So so you can like help clients negotiate yeah. better. So it's like you have to be active. You can't just be theoretical, you know, and sit back. Yeah, and that's but, you know, folks listening to this, if you've got entrepreneurial ambitions it's a big hurdle yeah to find those first few pieces of work 
for studies if you're a site, so on and so forth. And they might not, those first ones may not turn out that great, but uh, you know, if you're a competent person, just be willing to trust yourself that you're going to learn what you need to learn over time and then get really good at what you do. Mm-hmm. Ethan, this one's to strike my ego, maybe. Thank you, Ethan. What Dan is describing is completely true uh, in traditional healthcare. Healthcare networks acquire, acquire private practices and turn everyone, including the doctors, owners, into employees. There is less passion after that. However, the new crop of docs owners are far less entrepreneurial and the younger gen like punching a clock and saying peace out at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, but that's a plug for you, Dan, because that's, that's what you're trying to help motivate people to do, to be entrepreneurial. And if you're not entrepreneurial, no big deal. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, like nothing is worse than someone having that ambition and just feeling like it's an impossible thing to do. Right. But to your point, that's why, that's why I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. But, but to your point and to Ethan's point, like this, this is just free market. Like if that system, that new system does not produce over time, that's not a system that's repeatable by others. So the cycle just continues. And to your point, Joel, I'm glad this is happening for service providers because they have an exit if they want. They don't have to. No one's forcing them to sell a gun to your head. You know, RPI, he's close to retirement age. He's been offered dozens of times to sell his private practice. Nope. From a purely ethical person, he does not want to sell to the large hospital system in town. So no, he'd rather just shut it down at the end of the day than sell it. So, you know, but the option is there. Exit. You Us entrepreneurs take a lot of risk. It's nice to know at the end of the tunnel, there's the option to exit. The the greater fool theory exists. Like, hey, we know this is overvalued, but we're going to buy this. We're going to flip it because someone else is going to be a greater fool than us. And then (laughs) the last one holding it ends up being the greater fool. They all know the game they're playing. They just don't know when the music stops. Yep. The bag holder. (laughs) All right. One more. One more. LinkedIn user. Identify yourself, LinkedIn user. Uh, <laughs> papers, please. From my experience in the UK, cost varies so much from site to site. Typically, sponsors understand this, and there's always room to move on specific budget elements. It is always worth asking what the tolerance is on each budget line. You might miss out on some lines and make it on others as long as the aggregate looks okay. Great discussion, chaps. Great discussion, chaps. Yeah. Do you go line <laughs> by line? Chris, you go line by line? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, I just look at the bottom line. When Chris sends it to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. I'm done. Then that's good. That's, that's, that makes me <laughs> even more happier that Chris goes line by line. I'd be concerned if neither of you were. <laughs> Back in the day, I used to just be like, yeah, um, let's go. Like they would send me something. I would just increase everything by like 50% and then add a 20% overhead and call it a day. Chris is much more sophisticated. So thank you, chaps. All right, guys. Anything else? Everybody go follow Joel right now. I would tell you to do the same for Chris, but he's unfindable. So don't try. Just message me or Chris at the clinicaltrialsguru.com. Haven't right. shouted out your email in a long time, Chris. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and then Dan, Joel, thanks for having me on. Like I said, I'm, I'm new to your work great. and um, I'm, I'm going to be watching your stuff for a long time. Thank you for what you do and, and thanks for having me. 
Likewise, man. I mean, we need people like you and you know, I've been looking for this and everything I've found is like kind of paid for by pharma and you're independent, man. You don't, you're not afraid to call people out on LinkedIn. You're a must follow. So everybody go follow Joel right now, connect with him, follow all his stuff. You're going to learn a lot more and you'll be entertained too. At the same time, learn and entertain. And his comment section is popping guys like people throwing shade at each other no no this and that yeah get in there get in there guys all right thank you joel thank you chris it was a great one we'll do a part two and a part three like subscribe comment share bye-bye bye-bye